Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Here are some statistics for you. Over the last four decades, the wealthiest 1% of all Americans gained $21 trillion in wealth. Over the same period, American households in the bottom half have seen their fortunes diminish by $900 billion. Since 1978, corporate executive compensation has exploded by 900%, while the typical American's wages have risen by less than 12%. The 10 richest people in the world are collectively worth more than the economies of the poorest 85 countries. How did this happen? My guest today offers a two-word explanation. Davos Man. Davos Man is also the title of author and financial investigative journalist Peter Goodman's bombshell book. The statistics I quoted are from his book, the subtitle for which is, quote, How the Billionaires Devoured the World, unquote, an apt description of the book's contents. Goodman, the global economics correspondent for the New York Times, has captured the activities of Davos Mann and his supporting cast of government leaders, lobbyists, and many others who continue to create ever more dire circumstances for many on the planet. His book provides a vivid account of Davos Mann's global wielding of power on a surreal level, made even more surreal because it is wielded under the guise of what Goodman describes as, quote, Davos Mann's cosmic lie. Unquote. Goodman's here today to talk about all that. Welcome, Peter. Thanks so much for having me. What is the definition of Davos Man? Davos Man is this term that was coined by the political, politi political scientist Samuel Huntington back in 2004. And he used it to refer to people who attend the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. That's this annual gathering in the Swiss Alps of the most powerful people on earth, billionaires, heads of state, along with the odd Hollywood celebrity, public intellectuals. Um, I'm using it to refer to not only the billionaire class, uh, but this unique set of the billionaire class that would have us believe that they are actually the solution to our problems, uh, that we need not uh, worry about progressive taxation. We don't have to worry about antitrust enforcement. We don't have to worry about labor, uh, being able to bargain collectively for wages. We can just uh, entrust our fate to the goodness of the billionaire class because their interests are the same as ours. And of course, you know, at the World Economic Forum, they convene under this mantra, committed to improving the state of the world, which kind of gives away the absurdity of the enterprise. These are the people who are the ultimate beneficiaries of the status quo. Now, you've actually been to Davos quite a bit. Yeah, I, I've been there, I, I think, nine times. Just talk about the scene there. You, you called it... In your book, I think you called it uh, the biggest lobbying or the most powerful lobbying organization. I mean, I quote organization. a former forum official who said, no, this is essentially where the most powerful people meet in secret to write the rules for the rest of us. Look, the forum, uh, it's, it's sort of front-facing uh, part is uh, 
just an earnest gathering of people talking about important subjects of the day. I mean, they, they have this uh, agenda. It's a bunch of seminars and conferences, people meeting in, in this Congress center in the center of the village of Davos. And, you know, they're there to discuss climate change and the future of work and nuclear proliferation, uh, racial and gender injustice, you know, all, all the subjects that you would expect uh, an earnest uh, in, institution that's trying to improve the state of the world would discuss but the cool kids at davos the the people who actually pay the bills the companies that spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for membership they will actually tell you with pride that oh i never set foot inside the, the conference center i mean maybe they go for the uh simulation of the syrian refugee experience this is a real example i'm not making this up i've seen wow. billionaires submit to being blindfolded and led around in the dark while people are screaming at them to uh, present their papers and languages they don't understand and then they all congratulate one another for their empathy and then they go back to what for them is the real davos like a banquet held off uh, outside of the Congress Center by some global bank or consulting firm where they have truffles and caviar and champagne. Uh, or maybe they go back to the Congress Center just to get access to the exclusive lounges where uh, no journalists are allowed, not even the ones accredited to cover the forum as participants. There's no regulators. There's no annoying do-gooders. They can just uh, do their business. And this is where the founder of the forum, a guy named Klaus Schwab, will play matchmaker. He will uh, set up uh, the CEO of a fossil fuel company with heads of uh, monarchies from Persian Gulf states that control access to fossil fuels. This is where a lot of deal making gets done beyond the normal regulatory purview. All of Davos feels like a cover for that. In a, in a sense. I mean, it's, it's all of the above, right? So what I argue in the book and what I've come to see over the years is that Davos man's great skill, this species of human separate from the rest of us, is that he's able to kind of craft a narrative that's very self-serving, like tax cuts are great for everyone. Deregulation is great for everyone. Clearly great for him. Not so great for everyone else. While actually believing the merits of the pitch and Klaus Schwab, who's a key character in my book, the founder of the forum. I think probably founded the forum for fairly idealistic reasons, you know, believed in the idea. He was an economist from Germany uh, who had uh, studied management in the States, believed that if you combined the vibrance of the private sector with the importance of the public sector, you could solve problems. And he first convened the forum in the early 70s, just a few hundred people atop uh, the mountains in, in the Swiss Alps uh, talking about the problems of the day. Now, as it grew and his ambitions grew, it became more and more of a business. I mean, his, his marketing genius was understanding that the world was full of uh, seminars where rich people could go and talk about how to get more rich. You know, Forbes and Fortune had that locked up. But by uh, touting this as uh, operating under the banner, committed to improving the state of the world, you could signal your virtue uh, and then go and, and do real business. And so the two aspirations have grown in tandem. I mean, Schwab will tell people privately that he he looks forward to one day receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, he, he really views himself as this important diplomat who could bring together Xi Jinping, the president of China, with uh, the heads of state from the United States and Britain and India. They can discuss, you know, how we're going to deal with climate change. But along the way, 
he, again and again, he makes the compromises that ensure that the powerful people show up, which is why the other powerful people show up. I mean, it's kind of uh, digital stone soup. If you well, know. along the way, too, he started business enterprises uh, that have made him quite wealthy, right? Yeah. yeah, that's right. So, I mean, the forum is on paper and nonprofit. And uh, Schwab, I tell the story in the book, you know, at one point dispatched his nephew to Boston. This is back in the late 90s when he's hanging around with people like Jeff Bezos. Uh, he's the main draw at the forum. In those days, Schwab clearly wants some of that money. He sends his nephew off to Boston to go run this video conferencing uh, program, sort of like, you know, a, a distant uh, beginnings of Zoom. And the nephew builds up the technology. He builds partnerships. And eventually he flips this company to uh, a, a listed company in the States, US WebCore, and turns a $5 million investment. This is from the forum itself. I mean, the nonprofit foundation of the forum turns it into about 20 million. And at the last minute, when the deal's about to go through, Klaus Schwab calls his nephew and says, listen, one, one change, we need the proceeds of the deal to go not into the forum, but into this new foundation, the Klaus and Hilda Schwab Foundation for Social Entrepreneurship. Now, they will tell you, they, they issue these reports, you know, this money's gone to uh, drill wells for clean water in Africa and to promote education for girls in Pakistan. But it's it, it's operating under Swiss law. It's a black box. There's no way to know where the money went. And, and the nephew told me, you know, my uncle had seen all this money and he wanted a piece himself. And it was clear that he wanted this this money to flow into his control. We also know, I mean, this is research I did for my book, that the foundation has spent uh, somewhere around $70 million in recent years to buy land that ties together Schwab's personal home in the colony section of Geneva. This is like the Beverly Hills of Geneva with the forum headquarters, which is this grandiose glass fronted building on Lake Geneva. So for Schwab, you know, business and personal really mix. I mean, most nights he has a banquet at his house where he's entertaining potentially heads of state, CEOs of multinational companies. Uh, the bill's picked up by the forum. He's flying around first class uh, around the world, all picked up by the forum. He's driving Audi cars that are given to him at steep discounts. Audi is a, a leading sponsor of the forum, and so it goes. The thing that really struck me was how you delineated how Davos man uh, he tries to project himself as a good human being with, uh, and he has come up with this this term, stakeholder capitalism, which I'd like you to talk about. Sure. Um, but but he is also the purveyor of what you call the cosmic lie. So um, let's. I know that I'm bundling two things together, yeah, but they're sort of linked. They go together. Right. And so, and the other thing I, in that, in that, uh, in that whole package, when you answer, I'd like you to also talk about what capitalism used to be and what the Davos man capitalism is, as you defined in your book. First of all, the cosmic lie is uh, a combination of trickle down economics and deregulation. You know, it's this idea that if we organize our societies around diverting more and more wealth to the people who already have most of it, the benefits uh, will ripple out to everyone, will trickle down, whatever your water metaphor. Trickle down economics. That was Milton Friedman. Greed is, Friedman. greed is good. 
uh, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. More money in the pockets of people who have it and they'll spend it and we'll all benefit, which is something that has in, in reality happened zero times. Uh, but we keep trying it because the first part of it always works out. If you cut taxes and you deregulate, wealthy people really do end up with a lot more money. Uh, it just turns out they don't invest it. Uh, they don't go and spend it productively. They tend to put it in their pocket. They stash it away overseas beyond reach of the tax collector. They entrust it uh, to their children uh, through their estates when they are no longer. Uh, they buy back shares of their companies, which is good for shareholders, but not so good for workers. They, they don't do any of the things that they promise, uh, and yet they employ uh, friendly think tank researchers, uh, they endow university chairs, they unleash uh, legions of lobbyists to pervade this idea that has really insinuated itself into our uh, political discourse. Now, now you ask about stakeholder capitalism in, in connection with Davos Man. So, you know, yeah, I, I argue that Davos Man is a species that we have to understand as a species per se, because he's really a predator, but his his way of attacking is by adopting the stance of our friend and winning our trust and convincing us to let our defenses down while he's ripping our faces off and you can see this you know most sharply in uh, what's come of stakeholder capitalism this is this idea that that klaus schwab uh, started discussing back in the 70s but it's really gained currency in recent years when back in uh, the summer of 2019 the uh, Business Roundtable, which is this uh, lobbying group that's comprised of, of large CEOs of, of major corporations, then headed by another one of my primary characters, Jamie Dimon, who's the CEO of J.P. Morgan mm -hmm. Chase, America's largest bank. Uh, the, the Business Roundtable uh, declared officially the age of Milton Friedmanism is over. You know, the idea that greed is good, that if you just run your company uh, to try to reward shareholders as much as possible, that's gone. Now we're in the age of stakeholder capitalism, where you're catering to a whole range of stakeholders like labor, never labor unions. You don't hear that term thrown around, but labor, local communities, uh, the environment. Uh, Mark Benioff, who's another one of my primary characters, who's the CEO of Salesforce and a, and a big champion of stakeholder capitalism, once said, you know, the, the planet is a stakeholder, which is, you know, really reassuring those of us who live on the planet. This is a PR term. Uh, and, and the first big test of stakeholder capitalism, this idea that uh, companies are now run for the benefit of all of us, for society. It's not just about the bottom line. The great test of this came with the pandemic itself. Uh, and, and let's look at, you know, who signed this new statement of a purpose of a corporation organized by the Business Roundtable. There were 180 plus CEOs who signed. One of them was Jeff Bezos, uh, who we know uh, allowed his warehouse workers to continue to labor uh, without protection, without face masks and gowns and even hand sanitizer in the first wave of the pandemic, even as they got sick while the white collar managers were working at the safe remove of Zoom uh, from their homes. Uh, we know that uh, he said that his workers were essential workers who were heroically saving other people's grandparents from the pandemic. Uh, we also know that the workers themselves could see that they were putting into boxes the same things that were denied them to paying customers. They were shipping out hand sanitizer and masks and gowns and such. 
Uh, and that when uh, the workers protested, uh, most famously at a warehouse in Staten Island, New York, uh, where a guy whose story I tell in the book, Christian Smalls, uh, he, he organizes a, a walkout and he's fired for violating quarantine, uh, which is really bitterly ironic, given that he wants everyone to be quarantined, though with paid sick leave. So they don't have to choose between paying the rent, keeping the lights on and feeding their children and putting their lives on the line to go work in a warehouse without protection. He is fired. And then Amazon uh, releases these uh, these television spots with uh, interviews with happy Amazon workers, attesting to all of the things the company's done uh, to look out for them. And these spots are disseminated as real local TV spots. They're actually aired by scores of TV stations across the United States. Uh, and Bezos then, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, blasts himself into space uh, for five and a half billion dollars, and then has the audacity on landing to thank his workers. I mean, we, we have to look at this as, you know, it's not just that Bezos, who at one point was worth $200 billion, is prospering while his warehouse workers are not doing so well. It's that Bezos is prospering because his warehouse workers are not doing so well. And yet this is a company that officially is organized along the lines of stakeholder capitalism. Another great champion of stakeholder capitalism is, is another key character in my book, Larry Fink. He's the founder of BlackRock. This is the world's largest asset uh, management company. This is a company that, that manages upwards of $10 trillion. You heard that right. That's $10 trillion. That's university endowments. That's pension funds. And Fink is, is a guy who would tell you that you know any company that doesn't get right with climate change or doing right by society on race or gender, you know they will have the markets discipline them. The markets will deprive them of capital and they will fail. Well, at the same time, uh, Fink is organizing a $15 billion uh, investment into Saudi Aramco. This is the Saudi state-owned uh, energy giant uh, that's expanding its fossil fuel holdings that it, it only recently murdered the Washington Post journalist, Jamal Khashoggi. Fink is delivering investment to JBS. This is a giant Brazilian beef conglomerate that's clear-cutting the Amazon to expand uh, its cattle operations. And Fink, personally, I, I tell the story in some detail in the book, turns the screws to Argentina in the midst of the pandemic to try to collect on the bonds that he credulously purchased while buying into the idea that a former president, Mauricio Macri, was this great change agent for Argentina. When Argentina lands in arrears, this is really bad for Fink because, you know, in years past, emerging market debt crises usually just involved a bunch of bankers. You know, Citigroup would meet with Bank of America in a room and they would say, whoops, you know, things went bad. How much are we going to write off? Fink is now on the hook for, you know, the savings of school teachers in Omaha and uh, firefighters in the north of England. And it's very unpalatable that he's going to have to go to them and say, you know, sorry, I lost half your money uh, on Argentine debt. Sorry about that. Uh, so he personally turns the screws to the Argentine government, then contending with rising poverty, extreme demands on its healthcare system, and, and manages to extract an extra few cents on the dollar in a debt settlement that was very clearly designed to convey the message to other developing countries around the globe that nobody stiffs Davos man. And this is what will happen to you. And as a result of that, we have healthcare systems from Pakistan to Ghana, in, again, in the midst of a pandemic, 
actually cutting what they're spending on public health, cutting what they're spending on social services for the most vulnerable people so that they can prioritize debt payments to the likes of Larry Fink and other uh, creditors in London, in Beijing, in Frankfurt. Uh, this is another champion of stakeholder capital. Talk about Blackstone, about their uh, influence here in the United States, um, in real estate and in health. Blackstone is headed by Steve Schwartzman, who's another major figure in my book. Uh, he's a private equity magnate who's worth, depending upon the day, $35 billion, once likened proposals to increase taxes on, on wealthy people, like Hitler invading Poland. I mean, this is someone who has a real disregard for ordinary people and, and people who depend upon the government. So he has a, a tremendous ability to gravitate to where there's money to be made. I mean, whatever you want to say about Steve Schwartzman, he's a very savvy investor. And uh, after the great financial crisis and the Great Depression, when tens of millions of Americans were losing their homes, uh, Schwartzman plowed in and bought up homes you know, by the million. Uh, and uh, flipped them for hundreds of millions of dollars in profit, made billions of dollars for a whole bunch of Wall Street entities that sell the bonds. And classic Davos man, uh, he's not content to simply uh, make all this money and deliver to his shareholders. He would have us uh, think that this was an act of civic virtue. I mean, he, he you can see him in, in speeches, uh, in, his, in his own memoir. He talks about how this, this had nothing to do with the money. You know, he went into neighborhoods that were in great distress. And we had uh, abandoned homes and weeds overgrowing and uh, the properties and rodents running around, uh, such an eyesore. And he, he slapped on fresh coats of paint and cut the lawns and, and got carpenters back to work and fixed up uh, communities and you know you can almost hear uh, the sound the uh, the soundtrack for a comforting life insurance commercial with you know an adorable golden retriever puppy romping with a toddler on a lawn you know the, the reality is he creates the subsidiary called invitation homes which is an invitation for vulnerable people to pay much higher rent uh, he invites them to sit on hold for hours trying to reach someone if they have a problem, you know, if there's a plumbing uh, issue, if there's an electrical issue, if there's a problem with a payment. Uh, and he, he understands that people are vulnerable. And this is a pattern that we see with Schwarzman. We saw it again uh, in his very savvy investments in healthcare in the run up to the pandemic. He, he buys a, a, uh, he spent $6 billion in 2016 to buy a company called Team Health. This is an emergency room staffing company uh, that, uh, that is responsible for huge numbers of medical professionals working in emergency rooms. And again, not an accident that it's the emergency room, just as he understands that low-income housing is a good place to be because people uh, can't leave easily. And just as any casino magnate will tell you that it's a great thing to make your money in a darkened room where people don't know what time it is and they're drinking and taking leave of their senses, uh, any savvy investor understands that the emergency room is a special place because the customer, as it were, may be wheeled in on a gurney. They're not really in, in, in the mood to ask about the particulars of their health insurance policies or the bill. They're going to sign on the dotted line uh, so they can go uh, see the people with the white coats back there. And Schwartzman company, Team Health, has been, been at the center of this so-called uh, surprise billing scandal, the surprise 
is not of the happy variety. Uh, this is a situation where you know people go to emergency rooms thinking that they are safely within their health insurance network, not realizing that they are signing away their rights to be treated in network. And then weeks or months later, they get these incredible bills. They get hassled by uh, debt collectors. Uh, and, and at the same, and this is you know part of the financialization of our healthcare industry. Schwartzman is at the bleeding edge of turning healthcare into an industry that functions not all that differently from your local Starbucks, whatever airline you're flying on, fast food chains. The people coming in the door are customers. Uh, the people who who deal with them should be maximizing revenue and those people are costs to be minimized and most importantly you know just like your airline wants every seat to be full on the plane if you own healthcare you'd like all the facilities to be crammed full anything else is a waste and and, and this is part of why it's a major part of why uh, in the several decades before the pandemic the US loses roughly a third of its hospital rooms. This is why the wealthiest country on earth, given a several month head start, you know, able to see what's happening in China, able to see how Taiwan and South Korea are responding to the pandemic, able to see what disaster befalls places like Italy, uh, still is completely overwhelmed uh, by the pandemic. And I, I detail the story in the book of an emergency room doctor who works for Blackstone's company, uh, Team Health. This is a guy named Ming Lin. He's a decorated ER doc who had worked in New York near the World Trade Center during 9-11. And he's out at a hospital in Bellingham, Washington. And he, he asks in March 2020, with the state of Washington already uh, in a state of emergency, the, the governor declared, why do we have people just coming in the door normally with no triage system, no social distancing? Why don't the people at reception have masks on? Why is it that people who bring their own masks are told not to? And he's told by his supervisors at this Blackstone owned company, hey, listen, we work for the hospital. The hospital is our client uh, and the hospital doesn't want to freak out the patients with people wearing masks. Then he says, as this goes on, well, why are we still doing elective surgeries? I mean, shouldn't we be in, you know, all hands on deck for the pandemic? And he's told, well, elective surgeries are the bread and butter. He gets so disgusted and concerned that he goes on Facebook. I mean, at that point, he, he, he had never uh, taken up a political cause. His Facebook feed was filled with pictures of himself and his children, his wife playing the violin. He goes on Facebook as a whistleblower and says he's very concerned about what's happening at the hospital. And the hospital reprimands him and eventually fires him. This is a whistleblower who was trying to say that the intersection of private equity and healthcare was making us vulnerable to a pandemic that we now know has killed hundreds of thousands of people in the United States alone. And he was fired as a threat to the bottom line. I wanna talk about the 2008 crash because sure. um, there that's a classic Davos man uh, crisis, created crisis. And, and then frankly, you have Obama and his administration handmaidening um, their not just soft, but profitable landing after that. The 2008 financial crisis was a place where we can see who matters when things go awry in America. Uh, and who matters? Asset holders. I mean, this is a variant of the cosmic lie, right? We don't rescue uh, homeowners. We're told by 
uh, Obama's Treasury Secretary, Tim Geithner, uh, who has gone off to work in finance uh, and has always been very friendly uh, with finance, uh, that, oh, that would be, you know, what he calls a moral hazard. You know, we can't we can't bail people out who tapped the equity in their homes to finance uh, uh, trips to Tahiti and extravagant bathrooms that they really didn't need. That would just reward them for their sins. So we've got to take a hard line with homeowners, but we got to bail out the people who actually delivered the crisis, uh, the the banks that gambled uh, recklessly on mortgages. Uh, and so the result of this is enduring bitterness and unfairness. So, you know, first of all, let's pause and, and realize that, yes, of course, there were plenty of people who used the equity in their homes for all sorts of foolish things. But there were more people who had to avail themselves of whatever credit uh, they could because uh, the, the financiers like Jamie Dimon and Steve Schwartzman were gambling on housing. Uh, so, I mean, housing had become, and the mortgage industry itself had become just sort of raw material in the speculators casino. And that had driven up housing prices for everyone. So if you were unlucky enough to have children uh, who came of school age in you know 2005 in a in a place like Miami or San Diego or really anywhere in America, you know you didn't have a say over what it cost uh, to put your family in a decent school district. You you had to pay whatever the real estate price was, and society was telling you you know it was your imperative to to put your kids in a good school district. So you paid, and finance made the credit available, uh, and then the whole thing came down. And when that happened, the homeowners got nothing. Uh, they lost their homes. Uh, they tarnished their credit for years. And meanwhile, people like uh, Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, used the crisis as a chance to roll up lots of failed competing banks. So he amassed greater market share than ever. Uh, he uh, His stock value eventually soared as the assets that he was controlling grew, his own compensation grew uh, dramatically. And along- Even though he helped engineer the crash with his irresponsible oversight of- uh... There's dispute about that because J.P. Morgan Chase doesn't end up looking like the worst uh, of that bunch, but it certainly helps itself to the wreckage. We have Paulson who helps him uh, snap a- snap up Bear right. Stearns. Jamie Dimon will say, well, you know, I wasn't, uh, I was just doing what the government asked me to do to mount these rescues, but he gets these incredible subsidies from the Fed and it's a net winner for him. And moreover, if the government doesn't bail out all these asset holders, J.P. Morgan Chase itself is in real danger because, you know, all the companies that do business with J.P. Morgan Chase are, are going to go down in that scenario. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the government shouldn't have rescued finance. I mean, that is a view that's out there. It's not necessarily my view. I mean, I, I, I accept that at that moment in time, these institutions actually were too big to fail. Uh, and that if we had allowed them to fail, uh, the, the, the consequences would have been really dire for regular people along with executives who probably would have figured out how to be okay uh, even in, in that scenario. But the point is, we had this split screen reality where the CEOs get bailed out. There's no prosecution. So there are no consequences for the really bad actors who engage in, in wholesale mortgage fraud. And the ordinary person 
uh, can see that their needs don't seem to matter very much to the elite, to the federal government, uh, to the people who actually control the economy, but the needs of the asset holders do. And this kind of bitterness is toxic in a democratic society, and it lays the ground for political opportunists, like eventually Donald Trump, to come along and tell very misleading stories, demonize you know, the wrong people, uh, and divert our attention uh, from the accountability for Davos, man. I mean, what I argue fundamentally in my book, and it's, it's around the great financial crisis, not just in the States, but also in the UK uh, and in other economies in Europe, is that uh, from that period, uh, we get this deepening cynicism that opens the door to a whole bunch of political movements that demonize immigrants or, you know, Trump comes along and demonizes not only Central American and Mexican immigrants, but China. And of course, you know, China is a complex threat to the global trading system. There are reasons we ought to be concerned about China's impact on American living standards. But let's face it, like Americans, American middle class households have not declined because of decisions made in Beijing or immigrants streaming over the border. American living standards have been pillaged by Davos man. I mean, by decisions made in boardrooms in Seattle and New York and in the halls of Congress, America is a beneficiary of global capitalism, but we have not distributed the goods in a just way. And that's not by accident. That's because the people whose stories I'm telling in this book and a broader group of Davos men have used their winnings to purchase the levers of our democracy. They have poisoned our discourse with faith in things like the cosmic lie. They have unleashed legions of lobbyists and accountants to find tax loopholes, to write new ones. And so the result of that is the ultimate story I tell in this book, which is this bottom up transfer of wealth. And to your point, you know, the great financial crisis of 2008 was a landmark in this, but it was it was pretty far down the track. It's a story that begins in the 80s. It's a systematic transfer of wealth from the bottom up. And that story will play out all sorts of different ways. It, we can't always predict how it will play out, but we certainly know that when you leave tens of millions of people uh, having good reason to conclude that the system doesn't care about them, they're going to be ripe for the picking by political opportunists, conspiracy theories. You can draw a direct line between well, this kind of inequality and the January 6th insurrection. When you say they don't believe, I mean, the system really does not care about them because let's face it i i just wonder um first of all those are tax dollars paid by those people who foreclosed on their homes that are being given to the banks that's right. okay yeah it's their tax dollars so when when the president or his treasury secretary says um you know morally it, it wouldn't be a good thing to give you back a few of your tax dollars so that you wouldn't foreclose on your home. We need to give that to these big banks because if that system fails, you know, I don't know, the world comes to an end. So my question, I just wonder, like, how much exactly would it have cost to bail out those foreclosed people? Do you think it, it came to anywhere, anything near what was given to the banks to bail no. them out? No, it, I mean, it, it would have cost a couple hundred million dollars. So why couldn't that have been done? That's, well, the, yeah, but my point, my point is exactly that. You know, 
Obama allowed that principle, Obama and his Treasury Secretary presented that principle to the American people when they're handling their own money that they gave to the government, supposedly representing them, okay? Right. That, that is why people are pissed off. Yeah, you're right. It's not even about the optics. It's about exactly what happened. I mean, that's right. Obama, Obama stuffed his, uh, you know, his administration with a bunch of city, city group people, didn't he? I mean, there was uh, a list of people. I mean, they actually sent him. Didn't they send them, him a list of, of people for various cabinet uh, positions? He had uh, Larry Summers, who had come out of uh, Bob <coughs> Rubin's treasury. Rubin, of course, goes off to run Citigroup. Yeah, I mean, he had a lot of finance people. He had a lot of finance people. New York Fed and, and was tight with Wall Street people. And Geithner, uh, you know, at that time, would very clearly shut down discussion of uh, any any people considered for posts at the Fed or or Treasury if they were deemed anti Wall Street, I mean if if you and in other words if you didn't buy into the cosmic lie that at the center of our economy should be the needs of wealthy people you were not fit for service in the Obama administration. Who repealed Glass Steagall? Wasn't it was it Clinton? Yeah, that was Clinton. Clinton paved the way, right, sure. for this crash. He paved the way, and Clinton has been Mr. Davos man handmaiden throughout clinton certainly did the bidding of wall street clinton uh i i think if you're gonna talk about clinton you have to talk about uh, the decision not to regulate derivatives uh which were uh, elite i mean that's what turned a bunch of mortgages into uh instruments so huge that they were big enough to wreck the financial system. It wasn't just that all these people had taken out more money than they could afford. It's that Wall Street built these cosmically large bets synthetically out of, you know, mortgages posited against other pools of mortgages, just this massive leverage through the system. And, you know, back in, um, uh, this is a story I told long ago. I mean, back in the, in the late 90s, uh, a woman who was running the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a woman named Brooks Lee Bourne, proposed that there be rules on derivatives where there had to be a regulator, there had to be transparent marketplaces, there had to be a fund set aside in reserve against some of these bets uh, going bad. And actually, Larry Summers and Bob Rubin, uh, who was then the Treasury Secretary, uh, Summers was then the deputy, and Alan Greenspan, the famous uh, Fed chair, essentially beat her up uh, and convinced the Clinton administration that such a move would jeopardize the American financial industry. All this money would flow to places like London and Hong Kong. And so business went on as usual. And you can certainly draw a direct line. I mean, you can see the magnitude of trading and derivatives gets bigger and bigger as a result of that decision. Uh, Clinton also opened up some key tax loopholes. I mean, it was Clinton's treasury. And I, I, honestly, I can't remember if it was Rubin or Summers who was there then. Uh, who allowed companies to uh, get out of their American tax bills by booking their revenue in foreign jurisdictions. So, you know, this is a- uh, Like Ireland, yeah. Yeah, like Ireland, like your tech company and suddenly on paper, oh, actually we're, we're not based in America anymore. Uh, we're headquartered in Ireland and that's where our intellectual property lives. And all this money we're making selling to companies in the United States, well, actually we have to pay this enormous licensing fee for our intellectual property. We have to pay that money to our subsidiary 
in Ireland. So they're actually the ones making all the money. We're actually making losses in America. So we're going to pay taxes in Ireland where the rates might be as low as, you know, seven, eight percent on corporate taxes. Meanwhile, we're going to pay zero in the United States. Well, that was a gift from the Clinton Treasury uh, to business. And that and the result of that is uh, a systematic transfer of wealth from all of us to a handful of billionaires who can hire the lobbyists to make such things happen. Back to Obama. So, okay, I understand that the institutions themselves are too big to fail, okay? But I don't understand why those executives who made those decisions, who had spent all those years lobbying, going, you know, lobbying for, uh, for a situation that stole money from everybody, literally on the planet, why they're too big to jail. That I don't get. If you want to get into that, you should go talk to my friend Jesse Eisinger, who wrote this wonderful book called The Chicken Shit Club, which essentially <laughs> argues, this is beyond the purview of my book. Uh, I mean, essentially argues that the, the SEC uh, and other uh, federal uh, regulatory agencies and pros prosecutors have just gotten uh, really kind of flabby. Uh, they engage in settlements, they're afraid to lose, so they don't they don't marshal cases. Uh, and his argument is that uh, you have to be willing to lose in order to win. And the social imperatives to prosecute the people who actually delivered this fraud that wrecked our real economy are so great that you've got to go after some of them. Flabby is not the way I describe it. I would I would actually describe it as corrupt. I you know, they have their people inside the SEC. I mean, I've spoken to some former pe people who have worked for the SEC. And boy, when you go up against these big boys, uh, they come after you. And they're not, you know, these these are people who are willing to do things legal and illegal, extreme things, uh, to maintain the status quo. Uh, these are people, no doubt, who have quite an apparatus to maintain the status quo. And in the case of prosecutors, you know, there's the revolving door. Lots of prosecutors know that eventually they're going to cash in and go to work for the people they're uh, supposed to be regulating and prosecuting. So they play nice and they favor settlements and everybody can be reasonable. And then they can go off and earn, you know, five times as much uh, working inside the corporate offices and the places they're supposed to be watching. Uh, and, and again, you know, the net effect of that is a loss of faith in the elites that is well-earned. Loss of faith? I would call it outright hostility at this point. I mean, people, I think people are starting to wake up to what's happening. I think the bank bailouts was a big eye-opener for people. I would push back on, I mean, yeah, I think some people are starting to wake up to that. But when you look at the fact that so much of the anger in our societies is directed not at the people who are responsible, but at the most vulnerable people, it's hard to accept that as a conclusion. I mean, how do we end up spending all of our time talking about, you know, supposed Central American gang members terrorizing communities in the middle in the Midwest where nobody's actually seen any such people instead of talking about the, the bankers and hedge funders? And the U.S. press has a lot has a lot to do with that, I think. But um, I, I'm really super interested in the fact that um, you what you were saying about Trump being a result of all the Davos man activities. Um, and he comes in, of course, he, he portrayed himself <laughs> and he portrayed himself as a man of the people. And, you know, he was going to go after China and this and that. And uh, actually behind all that, 
behind that veil tell people what he did? Well, I mean, he's a reality television star, right? This is a guy who's basically failed at everything he's ever undertaken, except for his time on as a reality television star. His businesses have all gone bankrupt. He has to inflate his own income in order to justify more lending. Fewer and fewer, will, fewer, and fewer entities will even do business with him. So Trump comes in. He keenly understands that he's riding a wave of populist outrage, and he looks for photo ops to demonstrate his commitment to the cause. So, you know, I write about steel workers at a plant in Illinois who are they're just furious with China. I mean, that that's an industry where it's true that that uh, they do face unfair competition from China. And people can argue that their livelihoods are being damaged uh, by unfair competition from China. And Trump comes in and slaps in you know, tariffs on all steel, even from uh, allies, you know, as if, you know, the Canadians, you know, the Germans, the Brits, you know, they're menacing us with with steel. There are going to be 25 percent, you know, across the board tariffs on all imported steel. And he goes out to uh, the Granite City, Illinois plant where I spent some time in my book. And he, he mugs for the cameras with the delighted steel workers with hard hats on and everyone celebrates this moment. Well, you know, few people note that there are six times as many people in the United States who go to work at factories that buy steel as there are people who go to plants that make steel. So the net effect of this is to damage the competitiveness of American companies. And I, I spent time actually in Trump country uh, in uh, Western Michigan in the town of Holland, where I talked to a company that was making circuit boards uh, for electronics companies. And they were openly talking about you know, if this continues, we're going to have to shut our doors and move to Mexico, something that we find just appalling. But if we can't buy steel at competitive prices in our own country, we're going to have to go somewhere else. But but that, you know, Trump understands is like a footnote in the Commerce Department report, whereas, you know, the picture of uh, him uh, hanging out with steel workers in Granite City who are patting him on the back. Well, that that's a shot that could lead the nightly news. So he delivers. Meanwhile, he's bankrolled by the likes of Steve Schwartzman, who uh, gets Trump to deliver. These guys, by the way, they both own mansions close together. Trump's Mar-a-Lago sits very close to one of Schwartzman's many residences. I say, as I know in the book, you know, he owns residences the way most of us own socks. Uh, well, one of his places is in Mar-a-Lago. They dine together. Schwartzman lets him know that one of his great dreams is to get access to individual retirement accounts, 401ks, not just pension funds. Uh, and the literature shows that uh, companies like Blackstone operating so-called alternative assets like private equity funds, uh, the track record is poor. Most investors will do much better just taking their money and sticking it in some plain vanilla index fund, like an S&P 500 index fund. These specialty funds don't perform better. They usually perform worse. There are huge fees involved. But this is the great frontier for Schwarzman. And sure enough, uh, Trump delivers. And through an order that hardly anyone notices, uh, except for the trade press, which writes it up, you know, Davos man style as like a boon for consumer choice. He opens up the great frontier of individual retirement to companies like Blackstone. There's the pixie dust, boon for uh, individual choice. And then, of course, uh, invest in this risky thing that you're probably going to lose your life savings on, or you could very possibly lose. 
it's just so you won't do as well as you could and i mean you know you're giving up something to the people who don't need your money one thing that i really that just lit my hair on fire in this book was all the statistics that you talked about um i want to start first with when things were good in the United States, you, you said, I, I don't know, I guess this is in the 50s and 60s when uh, post tax, war. Yeah. post-war, post-war. Um, when, when uh, the tax rate for the wealthy was 70%, right? Yeah, and in some cases into the 90s, you know, okay, you so get ta- high enough up there. Yeah. So talk about that and talk about how, how the statistics as we go along to where we are now. These are years where the American economy is growing, where uh, productivity gains for companies, you know, executives are doing well, ordinary workers are doing well too. Uh, labor unions still represent large numbers of people. Uh, and the, these, are, these are positive years. I mean, I, I don't want a time machine back to the 50s and 60s. We made a lot of social progress that we want to hang on to. Yeah. We had Jim Crow in that era. Yeah. Uh, we had the Vietnam War. But in one regard, we do need to get back. And that's to an economic system where the gains for corporate America are translating into higher wages for everyone. Uh, and we had that. And what we have now... Uh, through a, a, a systematic but very gradual, you know, downgrading of uh, tax rates, uh, a, a dropping of tax rates for the wealthiest people and all sorts of new loopholes, you know, like Schwarzman uh, benefits from the so-called carried interest uh, loophole that allows him to treat his income not as income per se, but as, you know, a partnership, it's the result of a partnership. So the tax rates are like half what ordinary people pay. They're lower even than capital gains paid by, you know, uh, upper middle class Americans who are lucky enough to have stock portfolios. Net effect of all this is that uh, you now have a situation where people like Jeff Bezos, Steve Schwartzman, Larry Fink are paying a smaller share of their income and wealth to the federal government than the people who are scrubbing their toilets. It's just shocking. And the thing is, is, is their companies are enjoying the infrastructure that is right. paid for by the taxpayer. I mean, right. I, there's, there's just something so, and when I say infrastructure, I'm talking about the roads that, you know, sure. all that stuff costs a lot of money. And meanwhile, uh, wages as, as they make huge returns, uh, their returns are dependent upon them not paying taxes, them not paying living wages, them having access to a, a global labor pool, labor pool that is in, in some countries, I mean, it's just absolutely medieval and, and, and the wages are, are terrible. So this is, this is a huge problem because globalization, well, remember NAFTA, that was passed under Clinton, and, right. you know, all... A lot of stuff went to Mexico because you could hire people for so much cheaper, and and people will say, "Wow, you know that, that's business." That's what. But in the end, you talk about you. you I'll, I'll talk about what the world looks like now that this you know go wherever you don't have to pay taxes. All these loopholes that have been created, even here in the United States, by our own presidents. I mean, we forgot to talk about Trump lowering uh, the tax rate again for the wealthy. 
you know, massive tax cut. But you know, let's look even even more recently. I mean, we're now living in in a time of of a horrible war in Ukraine, uh, where we are told the key to stopping this massacre. I mean, it's a humanitarian disaster. Our hearts go out to people in Ukraine. The key to stopping it, we're told, is to hurt the oligarchs. That's a term that we we only use, you know, for for Russians. We don't use it for our own people. Uh, we got to hurt the oligarchs, and if we do that, if we seize their yachts, if we find their ill-gotten gains inside the American and British financial systems, if we grab their empty apartments in in posh parts of London and and, and Manhattan, well, we'll inspire them to lash out at Putin, and that will put pressure on him to relent on this war. Well, the truth is that our own oligarchs, Davos man, their interests have to be taken on as well, because anybody who's worked in at the Treasury will tell you it's not so easy to figure out who owns what in the American financial system. There's very little disclosure. And that, again, is not by accident. That's because of the careful lobbying of the financial services industry and private equity uh, and hedge funds. I mean, this is the province of Steve Schwartzman. They're left out of even the current proposals in Congress to uh, increase transparency. So basically, for us to take on the oligarchs who are supporting Putin means we've got to take on Steve Schwartzman and Larry Fink and, and Jamie Dimon and the other uh, financiers who have lobbied to keep our own financial system opaque. My question is, is, is this situation so big that it can't be remedied? And I ask that, you know, as I'm asking you that question, just keep that question yeah. in mind for a minute. I remember when I was working at CBS and I was reading all these statistics about wages stagnating, wages actually going down with respect to, and, and you know, I, I, I pitched a show I was working at CBS's uh, doc in their doc unit, yeah. And I pitched a show, the third worldization of the United States. Hmm. You know how labor was, unions were being right. broken up, people were getting less pay, you know, fewer social services, whatever. And I'll never forget. I gave it to uh, a senior producer to look at. And he indeed did the documentary, but he called it, and this is when I was thinking about this Davos man turnaround, who's getting rich and why aren't you? Hmm. Okay. As if you're not getting rich was, and this is one of, you mentioned how Bezos had said something to this effect that, you know, if I'm smarter and I'm more energetic and I come up with this, I have right. a right to have all this. But, you know, with a complete uh, willful blindness to, well, you have all this because you exploit a lot of labor, you know, right. you, you don't pay your taxes even though you use the infrastructure of all these countries. You, you know, I want to be careful to note that my book does not demonize wealthy people. That may sound like a surprise. No, 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 no. I, yes. And you that's know, important to say, Bezos. you know, thank you, Jeff Bezos. Exactly. Revolutionizing e-commerce. What a brilliant idea. Everybody what loves Amazon. Let's face it. <laughs> I mean, it's how would we have gotten through the pandemic? Right? Exactly. Without, without e-commerce. Exactly. And I, I'm willing to say, I, I don't have, 
how much jeff bezos should live comfortably We're, we live in a capitalist society he he's made a fortune a lot of people really like shopping at amazon and he should be entitled to the rewards of that he should also pay his taxes he should also uh not lobby uh against uh paid sick leave uh we should have a system where people have health care uh, and they don't have to choose between putting their lives on the line to support their families. Well, and their health care should not be a business proposition where uh, what kind of health care they get, including the drugs they're offered, including the kind of uh, right. phys physicians. I mean, as you said, general practitioners have been basically are being are, are being. Uh, taken out of there are fewer and fewer of them because the specialists are the thing and that is you know that's a huge concern so when you have bottom line considerations like health care housing you know that and and now people are saying oh you know it's when when uh, in the great reset klaus says things like uh you know you're gonna you're not gonna own anything and you're gonna be happy it's like excuse me What's yeah. this about? You ask, you know, are these problems too big to solve? I mean, if we conclude that we've done a tremendous favor to Davos, man, because, you know, I, as I note in the book, I mean, I, this kind of cynicism actually works in Davos man's favor, right? Like the most, the, the easiest way to sound sophisticated, if you're talking about economics in our current times, oh, everything's so complicated, you know, global flows of money, oh, they're so vast, yeah. technology's changing everything, you know, automation is a threat to, to workforce, don't, don't talk about trade agreements, don't talk about uh, low-wage uh, workers uh, being uh, played off against uh, high-wage workers. Well, you know, this is part of this false binary that Davos man has foisted upon us as a way of preventing us from actually exercising basic democratic rights. So we're supposed to conclude that, well, you know, we either have the world as we know it, where we have COVID vaccines and we have Uber and Google and central air conditioning, and it's all very convenient. Uh, and we'll have electric cars. Uh, we have all that, but we also have inequality and we have winner take all markets where people like, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are worth, you know, $200 billion. Or we can monkey around with that. And then the alternative is we'll be Venezuela and we'll be, you know, diving into dumpsters for our dinner and we won't have any health care at all. Well, that's nonsense. And history tells us that we need to be we need to conclude that that's nonsense because we've been here before. You know, we we in the U.S., we had the robber barons uh, in the last century, and uh, that turned into uh, a, a, a reaction uh, that led to the trust getting broken up. Uh, we had the Great Depression, which turned into the Social Security system and other New Deal programs that expanded access to health care uh, that gave us unemployment benefits and things like uh, Medicare and eventually Medicaid. And the result of that was that period that we were talking about earlier, where wasn't perfect. Uh, there were all sorts of uh, problems, some of which we've overcome social problems. But we did have a situation where the old cliche that a rising tide lifts all boats, that really happened. And every community- It worked. It worked. And it yeah. turns out that if you boost social safety nets and you give people greater security on healthcare and housing, we'll actually get more of the kind of entrepreneurial spirit that Davos man loves to celebrate when he's using it to denigrate government and argue for lower taxes. We will actually be more entrepreneurial, not less. 
if you know a person's stuck in a dead-end job or they don't enjoy their work they don't see any future but they're terrified to leave because at least it's providing health care for their family they might go out and start a startup company and employ more more people and give us a more vibrant more enjoyable economy but because we're all slaves to you know the status quo because we understand that change is perilous and you know we could lose our health care we're kind of stuck in this moment moreover if nobody's sacrificing how do we solve problems